A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hej och välkomna till Utrikespodden där du lyssnar på mig, Axel Hellman. I dagens avsnitt ska vi till Colombia, ett land som har skakats av enorma protester under de senaste veckorna. Flera personer har dött, ännu fler har skadats och det har även varit omfattande rapporteringar om sexuellt våld i samband med de här protesterna. Och för att hjälpa oss förstå allt det här så har jag pratat med Jamie Schenk som är forskare på universitetet i Oxford och en expert på just Colombia. Vi pratade såklart om allt det som hände just nu i landet men framförallt så satte hon allt det här i en större kontext. Allt från det landets politiska system påverkades av fredsavtalet med Farkgrillen 2016 till det landet har påverkats av den pågående pandemin. So, um, I'm joined today by Jamie Schenk, who's a scholar at the University of Oxford, where she focuses her work on the long-term effects of political violence, especially in Colombia, which is awesome, because that is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Um, Jamie, um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Axel. Uh, look, I'm so glad that we're doing this, and there's like a hundred things I want to talk to you about. Um, I think, unfortunately, all that's happening in in Colombia at the moment isn't really getting the attention in the media or the political debate that it should. So I'm really looking forward to hearing you explain all of this and kind of giving us the broader story. But um, before we do all that, I thought we should start with you. Um, do you want to just introduce yourself and tell us how you ended up doing a PhD or a DPhil, importantly, as they say in Oxford, uh, focusing on Colombia? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so my name, as you said, is Jamie Shank, and I'm doing my PhD in sociology here at Oxford, I'm focusing on sort of the lingering effects of armed conflict, particularly on political participation in Colombia um, and how that affects environmental mobilization in particular. My road to Colombia is uh, has sort of been long and winding, but always in that direction. So I'm uh, from California and then always been sort of plugged into to the Latin American community there. And then through high school and college, 
ended up meeting some amazing scholars who all focused on Columbia. So basically from my undergrad through my master's and my PhD, I've always focused on some aspect of the Colombian armed conflict and how it relates to policy. So first on drug policy and now with environmental policy and mining policy. Um, so uh, Columbia is a place that's always sort of held my heart in that way. I've, I've conducted research and lived there for a few times, starting in 2015 and then most recently in 2019. Um, so what's happening in Columbia now has definitely been something that I've been following and um, has been on top of my mind. Amazing, and I hope we can come back to, to a few of those experiences later on. Um, so uh, some of our listeners will, will probably have seen some recent headlines from Colombia uh, about these protests that have been going on for like weeks now. Um, there's been this widespread reporting of violence, police brutality, um, and there just seems to be this massive outrage against the government and President Ivan Duque. Um, do you want to just start by explaining what is happening in Colombia at the moment and over the last few weeks and tell us a bit about these protests and, and kind of how they came into being? Yeah, so the first the protests initially began um, in April regarding a proposed tax reform that President Duque's government was set to set to enact. And the idea behind the tax reform, there was a real motivation for it. Um, Colombia's debt hasn't been has been increasing. And that's only increased with uh, with COVID and uh, an economic slowdown due to the pandemic, and also social programs that the government has put in place to try and address some of the effects on poverty. But the problem with this tax reform is that um, they're perceived by large sectors of the society that they would affect those who had already been hit hardest by the pandemic. So rather than increasing taxes on the upper class and in industry, the tax reform increased VAT on goods that, uh, that are popular among sort of middle and lower classes. And this is happening in the context of extremely high unemployment, extremely high rates of poverty, um, and just an inability of many, many people in Colombia to fulfill their daily needs. So in response to this tax reform, the unions in Colombia organized a day of protest um, called a paro nacional or a national strike. Um, but as it happened in 2019, we can talk about that round of protests later. Um, the protest took on a much sort of wider variety of issues. So people came to the streets to protest, yes, tax reform, but also the government's mismanagement of the COVID pandemic also increasing rates of violence in rural areas and urban areas, um, also police brutality in previous protests, and then that became fueled by police brutality in this round. Um, and these protests have really then just become self-sustaining in a way. Um, so we're still seeing the mobilization of thousands of people in, in both rural areas and urban areas, um, blockages of major roads and urban areas, and also major highways. Um, so there's been sort of denunciations that uh, the access highways to some of these major cities, particularly Cali, which has been the epicenter of these protests, have been blocked. So the, the ability of goods to move in, out, in and out of the city has been restricted. Um, and, uh, and just a sort of continued agitation. It sounds like what you're describing is, and I, and I, I guess that's really the case in, in, in many of the kind of large-scale protests that, that that we have seen around the world over the last couple of years, that there's an immediate spark to it, right? But then it really takes on a kind of life on its own. And there are all these underlying causes and all this built-up frustration and anger 
uh, that just uh, comes out of it. And you you mentioned some of these things now, like you talked about the pandemic and how it has affected the Colombian people. Um, but I thought maybe you could just elaborate a bit on all these, like the, I guess we call like the, the structural problems that Colombia was already facing. Um, uh, the pandemic, of course, is there anything to say about like how it affected Colombian people? Um, and also uh, maybe touch upon kind of the broader political background as well. I'm, I'm thinking in particular on the on the kind of peace agreement and, and kind of the aftermath of that. Yeah, so I'll break this into sort of two camps. The first is, mm-hmm. uh, the, I'll break this into two camps. The first would be the economic conditions that I think are really spurring a lot of this discontent. And then uh, the more political, um, political and situational conditions. Um, so the first under economic conditions, Colombia is a highly, highly unequal country. It's one of the most unequal countries in Latin America in terms of GDP um, uh, or in terms of, uh, um, gosh, what is that index? <laughs> um, the genie? Columbia, the, yes, in terms of genie, thank you. <laughs> genie, um, yeah. Not an economist, <laughs> um, but yeah. So Colombia is one of the the most highly unequal countries in Latin America, and that's both in terms of land tenure and in terms of just wealth. Um, and what that means is that Colombia in the past few years has sort of seen this uh, rise in economic growth, um, and you can see this also sort of with how Colombia's image has changed internationally, a lot more people traveling there, things like that. But there are huge sectors of the society that have been left behind in that. Um, So there's extremely high unemployment, extremely high informality. Um, And what that means is that when the pandemic hit and you had these extremely long lockdowns that were imposed in cities, there are so many people who couldn't live. Um, Their work is not something that they can do from home. They make a living by selling things on the street, by being street performers, by uh, uh, selling from food carts or working in people's houses and things like that that aren't replaced. So there was, uh, you even saw this, uh, there was coverage of this on social media where during the pandemic, you would see in some of these poor neighborhoods, people hanging red flags from their houses, from their windows. And it meant that they didn't have any food. Um, that they were hoping that community members would give them food or help them in any way um, because they didn't think that they could survive. Um, And so I think that the middle class and all this economic growth in in sort of below that the elite class in Colombia has always been precarious, but the pandemic really put that to the forefront, showing that these people um, were really sort of on the brink of falling back into extreme poverty and that many of them did. So I think that that's sort of one of these underlying causes. And then that also sort of fueled why there was so much anger about this proposed tax reform. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, 
and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. The second condition relies or responds to the political conditions and especially what you mentioned with the country's recent peace agreement. Um, So Colombia has always been historically a quite politically exclusive country. Um, There are sort of a few families that have ruled uh, the political class up until um, the 2000s, really. Um, And historically, it has also been a country that's affected by armed conflict, internal armed conflict, um, as a way of sort of pushing back against that, that exclusion. Uh, So in 2016, the government signed a peace accord with the country's then largest guerrilla group, the FARC, or the Armed Revolutionary Forces of Colombia. Um, And that was a monumental moment. It ended a 54-year-long civil war that had killed many thousands of people. Um, Colombia at the time had the highest rate of displaced people behind Syria. It just affected so many people within the country. and I think it was it was a real sort of uh, watershed moment for Colombia politically in two ways. So first, it sort of opened this political space for new groups, um, whereas leftist uh, and alternative politicians had often been sort of grouped with the armed conflict as guerrillas um, by the ruling elite. When the, with the 2016 peace accord, um, that sort of uh, marginalization didn't really hold uh, hold sway anymore. So you saw the ability of these alternative candidates and um, and leftist groups uh, be able to to make a name on the political stage. You also saw this space open for social movements, for citizens to mobilize for rights that were both guaranteed in the peace accord and those that they hadn't really been able to before. Again, because of stigmatization related to the armed conflict. But the flip side of that is that the peace accord also increased polarization massively in the country. So. 
when the government signed the accord, they put it to a referendum um, asking Colombians whether they supported the, whether they wanted to implement the peace accord or no. Um, and in a very, very slim margin, the no vote actually won. Similar, it was similar and received similarly to the Brexit vote in the UK, for example, or Trump's election, sort of a surprise win by the conservative right. Um, and so what we saw then was this sort of simultaneous opening and political opening um, and claiming of rights and this hardening of the hardliners. Um, so that also is sort of what facilitated the rise of current President Duque's power, which is a sort of quite right, um, right-leaning group. Um, and I think that what we're seeing now with this huge, um, with this huge wave of protests is both a reflection of the economic struggles that most Colombians have have faced in the past few years, and also this sort of um, uh, choque or confrontation between those who have been wanting to reclaim their rights due to the political opportunity of the peace accord and those who have sort of hardened against um, what the peace accord stands for in relation to, to, uh, to those openings. Right, this is super interesting. And also you mentioned, of course, uh, President Duque um, and his government. Um, can you just tell us a bit about who he is and maybe say a few words about the current government? And also, I'm really curious to know how they have responded to and handled these uh, protests over the last few weeks. Yeah, so I think the Duque administration is sort of in a hard place, was in a hard place to begin with and these protests began. So. Duque himself is, is not very popular and has not been particularly popular even when he was elected. So he represents the Democratic Center Party. Um, and even from the election, he was seen as quite a weak candidate. But part of the reason for his win really is that the Democratic Center represents an extremely strong political force in Colombia because of its head, um, who's uh, former President Alvaro Uribe. So, Uribe himself is quite a controversial figure in Colombia. He um, has been accused of human rights violations due to his government's actions against citizens during the sort of height of the Colombian armed conflict. But he's also beloved by many, many Colombians because he sort of ushered in this new security age where areas that had been overrun by guerrillas and sort of too violent to live in um, were pacified. Uh, some would say at great cost to the citizens of Colombia. Um, but I think that sort of has made Duque's position as a president quite difficult because very few people really sort of believe in his power. So from his election, he's been seen as um, Uribe's puppet um, or uh, sort of as just someone who is, is the facade for Uribe in power. Um, and that has meant that he's had, I think, fairly few opportunities to really uh, legitimately take a stand, but he also hasn't taken those opportunities. So for example, it took him weeks to, to visit Cali, the, the city that's been the center of, of these protests. Um, and that was seen as a, as a complete abandonment of his responsibility to both the citizens there and also rec of recognizing the severity of the protests that were happening. Um, I think it was only a couple of weeks ago that he really offered the opportunity for a dialogue with the, with the leaders of the national strike. Um, and people have just sort of been asking like, okay, where, where is Duque in all of this? Because it seems like his immediate response and, and the, primar the primary response he's had 
just by increasing police presence, sending the military to these areas where there has been um, uh, violence and, and large-scale protests. But I think that one problem is that I, I don't really know actually what options he has. Um, so I, I mentioned briefly the round of process in 2019. I think the protests that are happening now are sort of this continuation of these protests that exploded in 2019. And what happened there was very similar. You saw massive numbers of people going to the streets in the major cities and also in rural areas um, asking for implementation of the peace accords, um, economic stimulus, like this, this, this sort of broad range of demands that we're, that we're seeing now. Um, and what the government did then was that they opened a dialogue. They opened um, uh, a dialogue with the strike leaders and also various members of civil society, but those didn't really end in, in anything concrete. There were no policy changes. Uh, the protests happened right before uh, the holiday break, right before the Christmas holidays. So they just sort of petered out and the talks also just sort of petered out. Um, so I think that the, the protesters now saw what happened in 2019 and sort of see, well, we entered a dialogue then, nothing happened. So why would we enter a dialogue now? Um, so I think, I think Duque's administration is sort of between a rock and a hard place, but he seems to still keep choosing the worst option of the bad options that he has. Right, and you, you mentioned you were in Colombia in 2019, right? What, what was that like to experience all that, uh, just like being there in the middle of everything? Yeah, so I was conducting field work in Bogota during 2019, the 2019 protests. And um, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was crazy. I mean, um, <laughs> I, like I've never experienced anything like that. I'm from the US and, and we have like a political culture, obviously, but um, nothing like the sort of large mobilizations that you see in Latin America. And it was interesting because I, I, came down to Colombia um, or went down to Colombia in, in September. And it was at the time that there were these huge protests happening in other parts of Latin America. So there, there was this huge protest movement in Chile um, that I'm sure your listeners have heard of. Um, and then there was also a huge protest movement in Bolivia. There were all these protest movements that seemed to sort of get closer and closer to Colombia. Um, and then in the weeks before the first day of this Paro Nacional that was called, everyone was really talking about it. I would be at meetings and people would be saying, oh yeah, have you heard about uh, the paro that's gonna happen? We don't know what's gonna happen. Or I'd be scheduling interviews and people would say, yeah, better better that we don't meet that day because um, we don't know what's gonna happen with the paro nester now. So it was this like real build up to it. Um, and then that first day of the paro was just, I've never seen anything like it. Just seas of people moving down the biggest streets of Bogota, holding signs for uh, every possible issue. It was this sort of party atmosphere at times. You'd have huge drum lines moving in. Um, there would be indigenous groups that would join in and everyone would cheer them. It was just this really incredible experience. Um, but at the same time, you also knew that there was this uh, potential for violence. So as we'd be marching down these streets and as I'd be watching them, you could see the, the riot police sort of staging um, on side streets. Uh, and when after I had left the protest on that first day, uh, the riot police had moved in and started throwing tear gas and a protester was shot. So, or um, was not shot, but killed when he was hit with a, a, a tear gas canister in the head. 
Um, but I think that round of protest was so interesting to be a part of because it was one of the first in Colombia in a very, very long time where you had urban protests that went on for so long. Um, Colombia has not been like other Latin American countries where you see these huge rounds of protests all the time. And um, this is really a new phenomenon in Colombia, um, I think because of peace process. So being able to, to see that happening in real time was, was really incredible. But I'll say that also that this round of protests feels very different, even though I'm not there. Um, I think the threat of violence has been so much higher. And so people that I knew who went out and protested in 2019, uh, you would go to the street at night and you'd even see families go and sort of bang pots and pans. Um, and people would sort of warn people on Twitter or on WhatsApp that the riot police were coming and then you disperse. Um, but now I talk to people who have gone out and protest and it's not that they're going out to protest their government, it's that they're willing to go out and possibly be killed to protest their government. Mm. Um, because the sort of tenor of, uh, of the police response has changed so much. So this is super interesting and, and, and it got me thinking, I think you and I got to know each other uh, actually, I think it was 2016. And obviously that was just about when the peace deal came about. And I just remember, you know, not being a specialist or an expert at all in the region or in, in Colombia, but I still remember that there was so much like international press about it. There was so much commentary about it. I felt like there was really like a broader conversation about uh, Colombia and the future of the country. This time around, um, kind of as I said in the beginning, all of this that is kind of playing out right now hasn't really gotten the attention that it deserves. Um, but obviously there, there, there have been, there must have been some international reactions. I was wondering if you could uh, uh, say something about how the international community has responded to this and perhaps um, give us a sense of whether there are any particularly important external actors that can kind of help shape the outcome in Colombia. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think you're right to say that there's been sort of relatively little international attention on the, on the protests. Um, I think you saw quite a bit when the protests first uh, sort of emerged at the, at the start of, of these 2021 protests, but, I think just to the nature of the world that we're living in, it was sort of subsumed by these other stories. Um, so like within a week, there was um, this heightening of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, all of these, and COVID, just, just everything. I think the news cycle in 2021 might be a little bit different than 2019, um, 2016. But um, I think Colombia is, is very aware of the role of international actors. And that's, I say, Colombia as both protesters and Duque's administration. Um, I've had many conversations or been in many conversations with activists or people who have connections to activists who have been calling for an international attention because it's uh, a way of both pressuring the government and also protecting themselves to just tell the world what's going on. And there have been calls among protesters for the Inter-American Court of Human Rights to come in and observe and um, UN Human Rights Commissions to come in and observe the police violence and, and to sort of make reports related to that. Um, on the other side, the Duque administration is extremely um, aware of uh, the eye of the international community. So actually one thing that he's really been criticized of is instead of talking to the protesters, he's been making all of these videos in English, sort of speaking to the international community about what's going on. So really trying to shape this uh, international image and this narrative of, of his control over the country 
um, and what the protest is is really like. Um, and I think that that view to the outside is really important, as you say, because of the the international attention that the peace accord garnered. So there are countries all over the world and many within the EU who have this sort of formal monitoring and accompaniment role for the peace agreement. So the UN has a verification committee, the EU issues reports uh, analyzing how the Colombian government has progressed towards implementing its peace accord with the FARC. Um, a few ambassadors have, I know the German ambassador has, um, made formal statements denouncing the police violence um, and the crackdown on protesters in Colombia recently. But I think that the fact that the Duque administration is so aware and so sort of plugged into what the international community thinks creates space for international actors to really try to pressure the government. Um, I think that there's even more that uh, that the EU as a, as a whole and also individual countries can do to really uh, make formal statements condemning what's happening with the police violence. So over 50 people have been killed by police by the police with this round of protests. Numbers obviously vary depending on the source, but, but I think they sort of um, coalesce around 50. There are hundreds of people who are missing and unaccounted for, and probably um, it's presumed that they're in police detention. Um, these are clear human rights abuses that the international community or the international community can very clearly and forcefully denounce. Um, and also pressure the Duque administration to take steps to try to address the demands of the protesters or maybe try to enter this dialogue and maybe it will be, uh, maybe the outcome will be the same as, as 2019, but there needs to be an attempt. Um, so I think, I think that's sort of the role that I see the international community playing uh, as of now. And then after this round of protests ends, I think there does need to be a real accounting, um, a real investigation into police uh, abuses. And then also um, the role that armed groups have played, implementation of the peace accord, all of these things that are sort of tied into this uh, round of protests. I think that's a great message, and um, hopefully we'll see a much more kind of forward-leaning diplomacy then, um, including from from Europe. Look, obviously, I, I understand that it's impossible to say, you know, what's going to happen next or anything like that. But but is there anything you can say about like, what we should be keeping? You know, what should we be looking for? Yeah, I think I think it's hard to say now what will end this wave of protests or or what will sort of. Um, uh, lead to de-escalation. I think, I think the nature of polarization is so high now and, and the, the Duke administration's options are so constrained that um, it's really hard to know sort of what the next step is. And in 2019, the protests sort of ended because of this fortunate or unfortunate timing by the holidays and the same thing doesn't, um, doesn't exist now. Um, we have quite a while until Christmas. Um, but I think one thing that, that is important to keep in mind, both as these protests continue and then when they eventually fade, is that Colombia face it, Colombia will have presidential elections next year. Um, and much of the protest is actually sort of a repudiation of national level politics. Um, many of the protesters believe that there are no national level politicians that really represent them properly or or are able to sort of forward their needs. But how that plays out in a presidential election that's going to happen could be really interesting. 
um, we might see sort of the rise of the null ballot. So, so voters um, casting a blank ballot as a protest ballot. Um, we might see alternative candidates on the left try to change their platform to appeal to this clearly large electorate that is really dissatisfied with how Colombian politics have worked so far. Um, we haven't seen any sort of clear indications of how that might happen, but it's still quite early. So I think that this presidential election in 2022 is going to be really interesting to see how all the candidates really respond to these social outbursts this year in 2019 um, and as they continue or if they continue into 2022. Thank you, Jamie. This has been so interesting. And before we end, I just want to ask you, um, do you have any recommendations for people who are listening and who would like to learn more about the situation uh, in Colombia? And also, can you tell us where we can follow your work? Are you on Twitter? Do you publish articles somewhere? Stuff like that. Yeah, so I am on Twitter. My handle is jlshenk, S-H-E-N-K 11. Um, and I have been retweeting a lot of uh, posts of people that I know are in Bogota or in Cali. Um, there's been great work in The Guardian by Jill Daniels Perkins. That's their correspondent in Bogota. Um, also, um, Reuters has been doing great uh, sort of bulletin coverage. Um, the Washington Post just had a really interesting visual investigation into police violence against protesters. Um, but uh, there are a few accounts on Twitter who also have been doing great work in both sort of um, amplifying the, the message of human rights abuses and accounting, um, holding the government to account. So that would be uh, Indepas and Temblores are two NGOs um, based in, in Colombia that have been doing great work. Um, accounting for uh, both deaths and disappeared. Adam Isaacson is, is an analyst in Washington, D.C., who's been following Columbia for a very long time and has really insightful analysis. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, those, are the, those are the few places that I would start. And then um, hopefully there would be a little bit more coverage and, uh, and more in-depth analysis of what's going on soon. Awesome. And we'll make sure to post some of these resources on our Facebook page as well so that uh, everyone who's listening can, can look them up. Um, Jamie Shank, um, this was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for enlightening us. Uh, it was really, really interesting. And I hope that you can come back to the podcast soon. Thanks so much for having me. It's good fun.